Joining us today on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos Interview Series is the renowned Greek-American author and filmmaker, Elias Kulukundis. Elias, Happy New Year, and thank you for joining us today on our broadcast. Thank you, Michael, and the very same to you, too. You've described yourself as a hybrid, much like your writing, as a result of growing up between three different worlds, if you will, those representing your Greek ancestry, your birth in Great Britain, and your American upbringing. So tell us about this hybrid upbringing. It's very difficult when you start. When you start, you don't actually know a lot of what's happening to you. I was born in, in London, and I came to Greece when I was about six months old. And the first language I spoke was Greek. And um, I've spoken in the in Syros, of the island of Syros. And, and my family have told me that I spoke with the, the heavy accent of the uh, of the Syros waterfront. A few months later, I moved to the to the United States, and suddenly I met my English nanny who didn't speak any Greek at all, waterfront or not, or no, she didn't know any Greek. And I had to speak to her, so I had to learn English pretty fast. So while those events were happening, it wasn't uh, exactly a walk on the beach. And the difficulties continued throughout my early uh, life, because things that people um, took for granted in one culture were unintelligible to people in the other. And I had to live with with both sets of people. So that was the challenge. What happened after that is that it's become a terrific adventure. So I think the lesson is if you if you live long enough, it, it comes right. You wrote your first book when you were just 28 years old. The title of the book is The Feasts of Memory, and it's a narrative journey to the island of your family's roots. From what I understand, the island of Casos, it's an island that is known for its strong tradition in shipping. And the book is based on a true story that comes from your family's past, and it was also converted later on into a play, from what I understand. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, one of the um, stories was, was uh, I turned into a play called Three Brides for Casos. The book actually is uh, now about to go into its fourth edition. It's it's becoming an ebook, and that's enabled me to, in a way, relive the writing of the book, and I've added material to it. It was a book that I had to write because of what I just told you about growing up in one culture and knowing about another culture. I used to hear stories about Casos uh, all the time. When everybody got together, they told stories about Casos. Half of the people had never been to Casas, but they were authorities about it. And I uh, decided that I was going to go. And I got my uncle, uh, George, who is uh, a major character in the book, to come with me. And we went to the island of Casas. And the book describes that journey, which is not only a physical journey going to the island, going to Crete first, staying up until four in the morning, taking the early boat from Ayus Nicolaos, seeing Casos appear as just kind of a little drawing on on the horizon and have it suddenly materialize. That physical journey is part of the book. But while we go on that journey, we tell stories that I had heard throughout my throughout my childhood. And that's why I call it the Feasts of Memory, which is because we celebrate our memory. More recently, you wrote a book which was very well received, titled The Amorgos Conspiracy. And this book is also based on a true story and on real-life events from your past. And without giving out too much of the book, tell us about The Amorgos Conspiracy. 
I think it's the um, next chapter in my writing life. In The Feast of Emory, I tell stories that I heard about other people, other people's adventures. And at one time, I called it an autobiography of everything that did not happen to me. The Amorgos Conspiracy is something that did happen to me, in which I was not only the narrator of the book, but before I could do that, I was the actor who, who made it happen. And it was the escape of a political prisoner from the island of Amorgos in 1969. It, it had lots of ins and outs because it was not a simple matter. And it had significance wider than just my own personal connection to it. The prisoner was my then father-in-law. But as I say, the wider connection was that we were trying to, or I was trying to, seems pretty audacious to say, but I was trying to overthrow the junta. And the way I thought I could do it was to help my then father-in-law, who was a moderate center-left politician. If I could get him out of the country, he could join with other politicians outside of Greece to form a government of national unity, and that could then induce some support from Western Europe and from the United States to push the colonels out. And we had a very good chance of doing it. It uh, didn't happen because, what a surprise, the politicians couldn't agree. And so all the effort of uh, staging the rescue didn't bring that result. The result it did bring was that it produced a lot of publicity and uh, helped to get European nations to oppose the, the colonels in a substantive way. And the colonels, as a result, resigned from the Council of Europe. They knew they were going to be expelled, so they resigned. And that was the first victory of the Greek resistance. And of course, aside from your writing, you have been involved in the production of various documentaries over the years, including the documentary that is based on the Amorogos conspiracy. Share a few words with us about your involvement in the world of documentary filmmaking. Well, the first documentary film I made was about the Cyprus War of 1974. During the era of the colonels, it was a mantra that people were always saying, the solution will come from Cyprus. And I didn't know what that meant. But eventually it became clear whether that this was a kind of an oracular insight that people had without even knowing why. But in fact, the solution, if you want to call it that, came from Cyprus. It was a solution for the Greek problem. It brought tremendous problems to Cyprus, of course. And the cost of that solution was 6,000 uh, Cypriot dead. And since I had been already attuned to the Cypriot question, I'd first gone to Cyprus when I was looking for a boat to rescue uh, Milonas from Amorgas. That was in 1969, and I, was, I became acquainted with Cypriot politicians. I will say of the center and left more than, than of the right. That was the first film that I made, and it was, an, I think, an objective account of how the crisis happened. And the, the reason I know it, it was objective was that no partisan approved of it. Nobody liked it who had a particular axe to grind. But I told it the way I saw it. And one thing I saw that, uh, that I think uh, was the most controversial was that I stressed that the Greek junta had brought this about. And that's something that we don't like to remember we like to remember how brutal the Turks were and whether we might think that uh, the great powers didn't do enough to prevent it, but actually we Greeks started it. And that's something I think we need to acknowledge so that we don't do it again. 
More broadly, you've been involved in a number of acts of political resistance throughout your life. You've already mentioned some of them during the interview. From what I understand, you once even served as a counselor to draft resistors during the Vietnam War. Tell us about your history, if you will, of uh, being involved in these uh, rather sensitive uh, political issues. I don't know that I can explain how it happened. You're right. My first political act, I've been aware of it as a political act, was to, to counsel draft, draft resistors in the United States. I was of a draftable age, theoretically. I was between the Korean and the Vietnam Wars. But I did face the question, what would I do if I was drafted? And that led me to the conclusion that I would not serve. I felt the war was unjust, it was unnecessary, and it was not anything that I wished to give my life for. And that's something that, by the way, there are a lot of illustrious people who may have felt the way I did, but who deny it now because they don't want to let that be known. Secretary of State of the United States, John Kerry, is one of them. If you see his testimony or his appearance before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he was a Vietnam vet. And he was the head of veterans against the war. And I think that's a distinguished record, which the secretary now keeps very quiet. That's another example of where I think we have to acknowledge our mistakes. We have to acknowledge what our nations have done wrong. And the U.S. did wrong in Vietnam. And I believed it at the time when a lot of my friends, a lot of my classmates were, some of them in the State Department, some connected to the government in some way. And I remember we had a Vietnam study group that met once a month. And I used to go down to Washington and talk, and talk to them. Nobody there came out and said, well, we are doing wrong here. But I felt that, that that was the case. And I thought what I could do is help young people who wanted to find a way that was different uh, to find that way. So I, I counseled people, and I, 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 did, I didn't say you must not serve, but I, I talked to them about what they actually wanted to do, and, and that, was, that was what you're referring to. What is your take on the political situation in Greece today and the opposition that also exists within Greek society to the policies that are currently being pursued by the Greek government and also by the Troika? Well, I think it's another opportunity for people to do and, and act according to what they really believe, not because it's respectable and not because it's in the interests of people to make us accept what is going on. I think the government needs to prove that it is a representative government of the Greek people. And having three or four votes majority in parliament doesn't do that. The government needs to convince us, the Greek people, that uh, it's really serving us. I had a discussion with somebody recently, and he was explaining what uh, the government is doing, specifically what the prime minister is doing. And I, uh, rather acerbically, as is often my way, asked the question, what is the name of the country that the prime minister represents? And there was, a, was an embarrassed silence. But w what I meant was, in what way is the prime minister and in what way is the government serving the interests of the Greek people, not foreign powers. We in Greece have the problem, and we've had it ever since we've been around, that we serve the interests of foreign people. 
quite often, even when we think we are being patriotic, because foreign people are can be very clever in how they present things to us. 1922, the disaster of Asia Minor, the defeat of the Greek army. Again, that's another issue where we like to say how barbaric the Turks were, how they burned down Smyrna. What we don't say is that we Greeks started it. We started it by invading Anatolia. And why did we do that? Because Great Britain encouraged us to do that. Now, this we're, we're coming up against another circumstance where people and governments who are not Greek are urging us to do things. And we have to decide, are those things in our interests, in the interests of Greek people, or not? We are on the air with the renowned Greek-American author and filmmaker Ilias Kulukundis here on the Alagos Radio and the the Alagos Interview Series. Ilias, you come from a renowned Greek shipping family, but you did not get involved in the shipping business until later on in life. What brought you back into the family business, to your family's roots, if you will, and how did working in shipping actually end up helping you as a writer? Very interesting question. I think the last point that you've made is the clue. I went into shipping because I knew that I would never be much of a writer if I didn't understand my heritage. And I had grown up in a shipping family, but growing up in a shipping family doesn't teach you anything about shipping. There's a quote that I am uh, very fond of by Andre Monroe, and that is that a heritage cannot be uh, acquired. It must be conquered. And I remember at the time there were other writers who wanted to write about Greek shipping. Greek shipping was always a fashion. Uh, subject, fascinating and fashionable. And people assumed that I knew a lot about it, so they wanted me to write about it. But I knew that I couldn't write about it unless I had lived it. And by the way, I also needed to make money at the time. That's not as casual an add-on as you might think. So I had a real motive. My wife wanted to have a baby. And I ha when I first w uh, worked in my family's uh, office, I got uh, a salary, if you want to call it that, of less than what the secretary was making, which was okay. She she was given a lot to do. People didn't really know what to do with me. So I won't go on much about this because this is the subject of my third book, Bold Coasts, which is, I hope, going to be published this year. And in closing the interview here, where can we find more information about you and all of your work and your current projects as well? You could go to my website, which is www.eliaskulakundis.com, and Elias is spelled E-L-I-A-S. Kulkundis is spelled K-U-L-U-K-U-N-D-I-S dot com. And there you will find information about my books. You will also be able to find my uh, two e-books, both The Amorgos Conspiracy and The Feasts of Memory. I'm particularly fond of the e-edition of The Feasts of Memory because it's given me a chance to look back a little bit. And I think my preface says that I was 29 when I finished this book, and I'm over 70 today. So I think the book deserves some short introduction. And I, I give an introduction telling a little bit about how I came to write the book and and as I, I think I said, it was a way to join my life together, taking a, a Greek subject and writing it in, in English, which was the way at the time that I, I found to join my life together. And you'll, you'll see all that on the website, also the Cyprus documentary. And when my next book is, is, is ready, it'll be on that also. And we look forward to seeing your next book and also the ebook editions of your uh, past writings. And uh, at this point, Elias, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today here on the Alagos Radio and the, the Alagos Interview Series. And best of luck with all of your continued endeavors. Thank you very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure to be here.